This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. Today, Richard Cooler, Catherine Raymond, and I sit down with archaeologist Allison Carter, and we look beyond the temples to exciting new archaeology that may help rewrite the history of one of the world's great civilizations, Encore. Stay tuned. Well, welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, uh, Eric Jones, and with me is our special guest, Allison Carter, archaeologist, currently visiting assistant professor at uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and uh, soon to be joining in the fall uh, the Department of Anthropology at the University of Oregon. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks yeah, for having me. That's great news. And uh, special guests and uh, co-stars are um, Catherine Raymond and Richard Cooler, uh, who you who you know, um, I assume, out there in the podcast land. But Catherine is the current uh, director of the Center for Burma Studies, Richard's Professor Emeritus and founder of the uh, Center for Burma Studies. And um, avid inter- we all have avid interest in... Uh, ancient Southeast Asia, and so we're here to uh, talk with uh, Allison. Thanks for joining us, Allison. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so you you talked about um, the, obviously, maybe the most famous civilization of Southeast Asia, uh, uh, Angkor. Catherine is gasping. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> and uh, tell us about, tell us the 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 old story of, uh, or the, the previous version of events of how this civilization rose and fell, maybe most interestingly. Okay. <clears throat> so how long is this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So, uh, the traditionally we think of the Angkor civilization, we have very specific dates for the beginning and end of the Angkorian civilization because of historic documents that tell us that uh, Angkor was established by Jayavarman II in 802 CE and then it collapsed and or was defeated by the Thais in 1431. Um, And uh, what we're finding archaeologically, of course, is that the historic documents seem to simplify these matters much more than than what uh, we're find what we're finding is happening. Are you trying to say that, <laughs> that <laughs> historians might not have had an exact? Uh... <laughs> I think it's a historical documents are giving us a great starting point, and then we can nuance this more with archaeology for sure. Uh, so uh, right. So so when so when uh you know when Jayavarman seventh or whoever leaves, then suddenly there's or or you know if um, if you're following only the where does the king live mm-hmm. then then you might have a different story than where does the the people of the civilization of Angkor right, live right exactly yeah so uh, what we're finding so i've been working with the greater encore project um, which is a collaboration between the university of sydney and the opsara authority and we've also worked with the ecole française d'extreme orient the efeo uh, and uh, looking especially at this period of collapse, the end of the Angkorian Empire. And so uh, the historic documents talk about Angkor falling to the Thais in 1431, but what we actually see on the ground is that there's not archaeological evidence for a major sacking and destruction of Angkor during this time period. And, and in fact, uh, with the Greater Angkor Project, we've done some survey work around the landscape, and we keep finding that uh, there's evidence, and evidence in the form of these ceramics, tradeware ceramics that date to the post-Angkorian period, and we find them all over the landscape in, uh, in, in and around Angkor. And so what we're seeing is actually, even though we have this narrative that Angkor falls, that the royal court moves further south, closer to the modern capital of Phnom Penh, that actually there's still a lot of people living in the Angkor area, and so it was never completely abandoned or forgotten and uh, what we're doing with the Greater Encore Project then is trying to understand this particular transition a little bit more by looking at the areas where people are living and trying to understand what Angkorian households were like and then how this was transitioning from the Angkorian to the post-Angkorian period as well, too. Maybe Catherine and Richard have something to say to this as well, but how hard is it to to understand um, a civilization if all you have left are the products that are that are uh, elite, that are stone carvings or that are the temples or the remains. Um, how, do you, how do you unpack that and how do you try to get... Um, can you tell things about the, the 
the everyday uh, Ankorian uh, Burman through. Well, you I, can to the extent that in the uh, in Angkor Thom, there are bas reliefs that show daily life scenes, mm-hmm. but those so are the these only sort of slices ones. of life. These vignettes, that, yes, yeah. uh, with ordinary people doing ordinary sorts of things. Um, oh. Fishing, making sate, uh, selling things to one another, uh, boxing, uh, oh, having right. pig fights. Being trafficked. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All of those things. <laughs> However, there's only one that shows, there's, there's only one temple that has these reliefs in it. Yeah. Uh, so you can generalize somewhat from that, but that is only one situation at, in one time period. Uh, otherwise, it's uh, difficult. Uh, you can extrapolate more for the, about the religion and perhaps religious practices than you can about the life of the ordinary man. Yeah, I think the second um, aspect we are uh, quite fortunate to have in uh, Angkor was all the epigraphy, the inscription on the stone, which have been really... Um, the basic um, knowledge and understanding of the site at the beginning uh, done by the scholars from Ecole Française d'Extrême-Orient, EFEO. And so that was a good start, but that was limited to the dedication of the temples and knowing the lands and the people who were going to serve these temples and eventually the reason why the temples have been erected and the names of the rulers. So we were very fortunate, but that's a limitation also of a certain elite. Yeah, so um, it's it's difficult, um, but but certainly worth it and interesting. Um, but we can look. You you look in your especially in your in your excavations. You can see uh, for people who maybe didn't leave records or don't have things carved in stone about them? Like, um, what can we know and what can we find out about those people and the kinds of places you're looking? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, archaeology, this is a real power in archaeology, is that we can give uh, some kind of voice to these people who were not really part of these historic records and part of traditional histories. Non-literate, it doesn't matter. You're looking at, yeah. Yeah, and so um, there's a great potential of what we can learn, and we're just at the very beginning stages of this now with our work and encore, and so what we know is, is is not that much, but what we could possibly find out would be great. So what we're trying to do with the Greater Encore Project is excavate areas where we think people are living, and on one level we could find out more about how they constructed their houses, um, how what size their houses were, if they were made out of, uh, as we suspect, made out of entirely organic materials, um, and then from there start thinking about what kinds of activities were taking place in and around the houses, so getting more of an idea about what people were eating and cooking, um, if they were growing household gardens around their houses, which I strongly suspect they were, and that's something we're working on investigating with our project now too, um, and how that might have been supplementing their can, their diets of rice and fish, which is usually what we think about when we think about Angkor, is that they had rice fields and they had access to fish in the Tonle Sap Lake, but probably had other diverse diets uh, that might have been grown in household gardens. So those are things that we're interested in thinking or looking at as well, too. And then one of the most common artifacts that we find in our uh, excavations are ceramics. And so we're starting to learn more about the kinds of ceramics they're using to cook and eat food in, but also other ceramics that might have been used for other purposes, um, so uh, uh, ceramics that are made locally made or made by Angkorian kilns, stoneware ceramics that might have been more storage jars, as well as tradeware ceramics. So tradewares coming in primarily from China that might have also contained other things in them as well, too. And so with all of that, we're um, hoping to gather a more complete view about what daily lives were like for people, what kinds of goods they had access to, how they were plugged into these uh, networks, economic networks, both as producers and consumers. Um, and in terms of the work that we've been doing most recently, we've been looking at uh, occupation areas within within the temple enclosure of Angkor Wat. So this could give us even a, a more of an idea about perhaps uh, occupation related to the temple. We don't know for sure yet that the people living inside the Angkor Wat enclosure were working at the temple. I strongly suspect they were. So 
we have all sorts of different people living in Angkor with different economic and uh, occupational specializations. So the more research we do into this, we can get a better idea about the great diversity of people and life ways that Angkorians had in that time period. I, I would have guessed that when I when I was listening to you talk, I thought, okay, she's going to say that, um, you know, the proximity to that mandala is everything. So the people who, the elites are going to live closest to that center, that mm-hmm. sacred center, and um, and we'll know it because of their, you know, their roof tiles um, and that uh, as you get further out, you're going to have um, less elite people. Um, yeah. But you found something completely opposite. So talk about that. Yeah, well, we one way that we're trying to understand, uh, you know, status of people or elite versus non-elite people is that um, there was a Chinese visitor to Angkor in 1296 AD, and he wrote about the types of houses that people lived in. And he said, elite people live in bigger houses, and those houses have ceramic roof tiles. And you can imagine a house with a ceramic roof uh, is going to be really heavy, so you have to have pretty solid construction to hold up a ceramic roof. And then he said, poor people lived in houses made of thatch and they were smaller. And so that gives us something material we can look for on the archaeological record in terms of um, are we finding a lot of roof tiles in our excavations? Would that help us then say that these are elite members of society or are we finding some variation? The more excavations we do, maybe we could see variation in house size that might be related to status as well also. And then if people had really nice ceramics, then we could say something else about status too. But what we're finding at Angkor Wat, first of all, is we find almost no ceramic roof tiles. Um, we haven't found a clear house structure yet, but... Uh, and we're talking kind of within the moat. Yeah, right? within inside the moat, outside the temple, but within the moat um, in area. Um, and around, there's a wall that goes around this area as well, too, at Angkor Wat. Um, and we're finding really interesting ceramics, though, I think. So these are not the... I don't think they're the poorest people in... Angkor that are living inside of Angkor Wat because they do seem to have some interesting Chinese tradewares they have access to. They seem to have some interesting Khmer stoneware ceramics that they have access to, but they're not living at least in super fancy houses that we can tell. Uh, so uh, I think this is another line of evidence just that the, you know, we really only have learned about the most top level, the 1% part of Angkorian society. The 99%, the rest of Angkorian <laughs> society is really diverse, I think, and there's probably great um, variation in uh, the lifestyles that people had in Angkor. And so the best way for us to study this is to keep looking at where they're living. Well, I'm interested, um, due to the situation where you could excavate because, as you mentioned in our uh, talk today when you presented um, your research, uh, you were excavating in the um, east-south corner. Mm -hmm. And if they will be elite uh, priests or elite people, we may assume they would have been maybe further in front of the West Entrance, where we have uh, already Buddhist monastery built mm-hmm. up later on. So that, that may be also various. Yeah, possibly. Um, you know, this might be something I would want to check, and then we could go back and edit if I'm wrong. Um, but uh, in 2010, when my colleagues uh, run by the project and has been directed by Miriam Stark at the University of Hawaii, and in 2010, when they were there, um, I think they had some evidence that actually the northeast corner might have been an area where there would have been elite people. And so they did put trenches in that area, and they didn't find anything that looked different from what we were seeing in the southeast corner of Angkor Wat. Um, I would need to double check if that's uh, if that was part of her rationale for putting her trenches up there. But I want to say that that was the part of her. Yes. Some of her rationale was that the northeast corner was supposed to be where the elites were living. Um, the problem with working on the western side of Angkor Wat is that it's been really heavily modified. So our best shot at finding undisturbed materials is to stick on the eastern side. Uh, yeah. So if you if you're for our listeners who you should go to Angkor if you've never been there, <laughs> stop it, pause this podcast, <laughs> buy a ticket, and go to Angkor, then and come come back. back and you can resume. Okay, you're back. Uh, if you had a good time and. Uh, if you if you're today at Encore, um, it obviously um, 
it looks different than 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 historically it would have looked, of course. Um, but even even archaeological surveys of the old-fashioned type can't can't get at some of those realities. It's only been with the innovation you and others have pointed out of of kind of ground pen or um, lasers and radar mm-hmm. lidar that have. Um, Opened up the world of, of understanding of of the of these temple complexes and of the of the larger metropolitan structure of of Angkor. So, mm-hmm. what what does lidar tell us about? Uh, well, I guess what is it, and what does it tell us about um, Angkor Wat? That's interesting. Yeah. So lidar has been really revolutionary. I should point out that there have been many archaeologists who've done. The same. It's possible to do this work on the ground, and in fact, our colleague Jacques Gaucher has done a lot of on the ground boots on the ground with machetes, like work in the <laughs> in the jungle, looking, making maps that uh, that we can also uh, we can get from lidar as well too. It just saves us, you know, dozens of years probably <laughs> to get the lidar data. You can survey a huge area and get lidar returns on the landscape that might take a lifetime of someone to be on the ground. Um, and even then, you know, um, the accuracy of LIDAR seems to be just really amazing. So basically, um, all of these areas, many of the areas that we're working are covered with trees. And so that does make it really difficult to see the ground surface and see clearly the um, landscape uh, modifications that have been made. So in 2010, when my colleagues were working at Angkor Wat, you can tell that the ground is not completely flat. You can see that there's undulations of mounds and depressions. And so they did do a preliminary map of part of the um, eastern part of, I think, the northeastern corner of Angkor Wat's enclosure, noting this uh, this kind of sort of linear features of mounds and depressions. But uh, to really see beyond that would have just taken, you know, many years of field work. When the LIDAR survey came through, what you could see then is that actually this is this incredibly integrated landscape that... Within the enclosure of Angkor Wat, you have this very well-planned grid system with a series of mounds and depressions in uh, orthogonally laid out according to the cardinal directions that this pattern continues outside the eastern part of the moat of Angkor Wat into a small enclosure area. And that even south of Angkor, you have these very large um, earthworks, square spiral earthworks that all seem to have been planned as part of this single landscape seemingly at the time of the construction of the temple. And so uh, for us as archaeologists, like, you know, we could do a little bit of work um, on some of these mounds. We could start kind of mapping and seeing how it's sort of tying into a broader landscape. But to get LIDAR and suddenly see that all of these areas that are covered by forest inside of Angkor have been modified by the Angkorians and that they're seemingly in many cases part of a much larger landscape plan um, urban grid system is uh, really amazing and it does make you realize too that this this is a very integrated landscape that's something we knew we've known for a long time that the that this more there was more than going more going on than just the temples these temples were not isolated places in the landscape which I think when you're a tourist at Angkor it's pretty easy just to kind of feel like you you ride in your tuk-tuk and you get out and you go to one temple and then you ride to the next temple and you get out and they sort of seem like these little islands in the middle of a jungle. But when you peel away this tree layer and see this landscape around the temples, you see that's all this massive um, urban system that's all tied together um, with a lot of work that's been done by people in the past. So what we're seeing now is that, you know, these areas around the temples that maybe in the past people have thought were maybe sparsely inhabited Um, are areas where people are living, where they seem to be kind of neighborhoods of people living around the temples, perhaps people who are working in the temples. And then that within even uh, like the areas outside the walls of some of the temples, there's people living there as well, too. So uh, we're really getting this much more um, detailed picture of what life was like in Angkor at uh, at this landscape scale. For our our listeners... um they might think Angkor, and you know, if you Google that, you'll get a picture of a gorgeous temple, temple yeah. um, which is Angkor Wat. Uh, but Angkor is also the the civilization, but and, and this urban core. So to give our listeners some sense of scale, what are we talking about in terms of the the the, the urban core, uh, the the suburbs? Um, the how how vast is this uh, footprint of 
uh, Angkor civilization. Yeah. Well, my colleagues have done a comprehensive map of Angkor, uh, Damien Evans and Christophe Poitier um, being the two main researchers who've been working on mapping. And it, it's an area of a 1,000 square kilometers. So when you go as a tourist, you're in this very small part, definitely like the downtown happening part of Angkor, but uh, it's a small part of a much larger landscape. And it's a it's a kind of urban pattern that is we are finding is actually not uncommon in tropical societies. So uh, my um, colleague, the director of the Greater Angkor Project, um, Roland Fletcher, calls this a tropical low density urbanism or low density agrarian based urbanism with the idea that you, you do have this kind of central area that's really focused on the temples and on the ceremonial part of the landscape where the elite people are living and the royals. But uh, it's integrated into this um, rural landscape of uh, you know house mounds that are integrated into this broader water management network seemingly, um, and then there are rice fields as well too. Uh, and it just kind of keeps, it's a sprawl. It just goes on for miles and miles and miles and... Uh, it's a kind of a repeating pattern of these uh, agrarian landscape of people kind of living intermixed with their rice fields, but that it's all connected through this infrastructure back to the center as well. Alison, you have been working on, uh, on bees uh, and bees trade mm -hmm. in the area. Can you tell us more about what uh, you have been discovering on finding bees in the Angkorian civilization linked with the neighboring countries up to India? Yeah. So the, um, the research you're referring to is part of my dissertation project that was looking at uh, exchange of stone and glass beads in Southeast Asia. And actually the time period I was looking at was about a thousand years before Angkor. So it's really uh, a time period where I think we're setting a lot of, uh, there's a lot of interconnections. There's a lot of things happening that end up kind of evolving into Angkor later. You could make that argument at least. Um, so I'm working in a, it's what's called the iron age period, which is about 500 BC to 500 AD. And uh, what I was, I was looking at were stone and glass beads that were found primarily from burial sites so we actually don't have any burials from the Angkorian period, but we do from the Iron Age period, and people were very frequently buried with these stone and glass beads. And uh, the idea was that they were always coming from India or Sri Lanka or South, South Asia broadly, and uh, then they were getting pretty widely exchanged into Southeast Asia. And so I really was interested in trying to understand the exchange patterns of these beads, and then if we could see any, any way that the trade patterns of beads were... Um, were then uh, somehow related to these emerging elite people that were. Are you able to date them by by the the manufacturer or the how how do you how do you know the age of the beads? Yeah, well, primarily because they're in burials that have been dated, okay. or that we can kind of roughly date based on ceramics right. and that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, the beads themselves do have a do seem to change over time, actually. So we, they're kind of, you can get a rough estimate maybe for what time period you're in, but the most precise dates are coming from when someone yeah. dates the burial. Uh, so these beads, um, I, I, my hypothesis was, and many people have said for a long time, these beads are exotic prestige objects. They're not things that everybody necessarily had access to. And during the Iron Age period is when we start really seeing emerging elite people, social stratification, um, this process that seems to then continue and evolve over several hundred years until we get to the establishment of the Angkorian Empire. So it's really beginning, when we have these emerging elites, this is really beginning in the Iron Age period, and I was really wondering if you could see anything about that with the beads, that people, presumably people who are powerful, are going to control access to the trade of these materials. So what I was doing was looking at you know, where the beads are found, I did a lot of work at the Field Museum in Chicago doing compositional analysis of the glass beads to try and understand their recipes and then see if I could see patterns in the trade of beads by uh, different recipes and then looking at the stone and trying to identify the uh, stone raw material source. And uh, I found a few things. First of all, the stone beads seem to be, the raw material for the stone beads seems to be coming from India. There's a large agate source in Northwest India and uh, that has been used for bead making for 2,000 years. And they it's really good 
gem quality, bead quality, agate, and carnelian. And the they seem to have been using that to make beads in Southeast Asia as well, too. However, uh, work by colleagues, French uh, Thai team at the site called Khao Keo in the Thai Malay Peninsula um, has shown that there's actually people making beads in that area, probably Indian craftsmen. And I looked at some materials from that site, and those also the stone from that also seems to be coming from India. So uh, it's it's entirely possible that people are making beads in Southeast Asia also, but bringing the raw material with them, as well as trading mm. the finished product. And then the glass, um, we have some really interesting glass recipes that we don't quite understand, but what seems to happen is that there's an early glass type, which could be made somewhere in China, we're not exactly sure where the original glass is coming from. It's called potash glass. Uh, but then over time, there's actually glass that's getting made in Sri Lanka, glass beads that are getting made in Sri Lanka. And those ones come over into Southeast Asia in the first millennium AD, and they get traded very widely in high quantities. So uh, what I was finding basically was that you could see changing trade networks over time. You could see shifts in uh, the exchange of beads on what I think was already a pre-existing exchange network in the South China Sea that was already connecting elite people in Southeast Asia to Do you think they had religious function, social function? Social function for sure, because they seem to be, I don't know exactly what, but they seem to be prestige objects that only certain people had access to in some communities. Outside of that, it's really hard to tell what they were used for. But... um, but they do seem to be, I think, showing that there's emerging elite people and that some of them, I think, in the Mekong Delta were controlling the trade of these materials. That's my argument, at least, and we still need more work on that to say for sure. But the Mekong Delta is where we also see the emergence of this uh, complex society the Chinese called Funan that uh, mm-hmm. would be, uh, it was involved in trade, but also um, is where we have the earliest Khmer script written from, or dated Khmer inscription from 611 AD, early examples of sculpture. There's definitely elite members of society in that area. And uh, what I think is happening is, you know, you start seeing these people emerging there and then over time power shifts further and further inland. And then we end up in the banks of the Tonle Sap where we establish Angkor. So it's not necessarily the direct line that I have just drawn here, but I think you can see the kind of inklings of the beginning of Angkor and the Mekong Delta region. Thank you. You can almost see the the pyramid forming, like the, you know, <laughs> that there's stratification. There's like yeah, I think yeah. you can see people are getting ideas about how to become rulers down mm-hmm. in the Mekong Delta during the Funan period, and then uh, we have really great inscriptional data from the sixth to eighth centuries. Uh, just showing more and more people kind of figuring out how how to be elite, how to be rulers, until you finally get Jayavarman the second to solidify it apparently <laughs> as the as the king of Angkor. So the so the uh, this 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 Angkorian civilization it uh, it it grows it thrives. Um, one story is maybe the t- maybe the the Thai bring it down. Mm-hmm. You know we've heard of. Mongol invasions. There's lots of there's lots of you know uh, speculation about what might have led to the uh, uh, trade um, from inland agrarian to, to maritime. Um, but climate is uh, I think is pretty is newer on the radar. Um, what role do you think uh, that that climate had in um, in maybe the, the the shrinking of Angkor? Yeah, I think climate seems to, we're finding increasingly that climate has played a significant role in the decline of the Angkorian civilization. So um, you can, uh, some of my colleagues in the Greater Angkor Project have done work. You can see um, they've been doing a lot of work in terms of understanding how the water management network at Angkor developed. And in the process of studying that, they can also see places where the water management network was failing. And so for a long time, they had suspected that there were some Um, ecological reasons, perhaps environmental reasons for the failing of the water management network. And then there's been recent research by um, Brandon Buckley and his colleagues doing looking at tree ring data from Vietnam that tells us more about broader regional monsoon patterns. And what he's finding is that in the 14th and 15th centuries, there's this series of really serious droughts. And he can tell that, of course, by looking at the tree rings and the tree rings are much thinner during those periods and then they're wider during periods of heavy rain. So he's looking at these tree rings and seeing that there's you know, decades of 
really serious droughts, followed by these kind of punctuated, very strong monsoon patterns. And the um, what we can see on the ground at Angkor, what we can we're starting to see is that you know it seems like people are making man, uh, they're making decisions to manage the water management network, so they're making adaptations to respond to these periods of drought, and then they get punched with really heavy monsoons, and that blows out part of their water management network. It just seems to become really difficult for them to maintain the water management network on this huge scale. At the time, by this time. Uh, the water management network had become really large and intricate. They'd been making modifications to it for years. And so it just kind of seems like it got to be too much to manage with these really um, serious climatic changes. So what we're starting to see is that actually um, that might have been a big push factor in terms of pushing people out of the Angkor region. Certainly the historic documents talk about these sociopolitical problems that were happening at the same time that also seem to have caused people to want to move further south. But the... Um, the environmental changes that are happening seem to have also had a really serious effect on Angkor as well, too. Now, of course, what we found, as I mentioned earlier, is that there's still people living there and there's still people who decide to stay behind. So one of the things we're trying to understand then is um, what are people doing to maintain their res resiliency during this time period? They're in a period of sociopolitical and environmental change. And yet many of them choose to stay or decide to stay or they're able to stay because they seem to be making certain adaptations or decisions about how to manage their household. So what we're trying to do archaeologically is understand that process a little bit more. And with that, nuance this idea about collapse that, you know, maybe the sociopolitical center changes the way that the elites um, are moving further south is significant, but there's still plenty of people in the Angkorian landscape that stay there after the quote-unquote end of the Encore period, and and so we want to know a little bit more about those people. For for our listeners, give give us some sense of like the scale of the of the the waterworks, the canal systems, and the, and the kind of like why water so essential. <laughs> I mean, we can guess, but yeah. give us a picture of that. Well, it's um, it's it's pretty amazing the um the scale of the water management network at Encore. So, um. Bas I mean, for anyone familiar with mainland Southeast Asia, you know there's highly seasonal monsoon uh, raining rain patterns. So it means part of the year you don't have enough water, part of the year you might have too much water. And so even going back to you know early farmers in the Neolithic period in Southeast Asia, people had to kind of manage this water. And so when we get to an empire and the Angkorian Empire, they they have to manage the same problem but on a much larger scale. So uh, they do things like create these huge water storage tanks. So like, for example, the West Barai, which still holds water today, and you can go and get a boat and go out to the middle of the West Barai. There's an island there and have a picnic. I have yet to do this, but I hear it's lovely. <laughs> go take a boat and have a picnic in the West Maybon. Uh, but the West Barai is about eight kilometers long by two kilometers wide. It's a huge, massive man-made construction. Man-made, it's amazing. Entirely yeah. man-made construction. And then there's long canals. Has someone done the math? How many baskets of earth, how many people? Someone probably has. I don't know off the top <laughs> of my head how many man hours. Uh, I think actually think Christophe Fautier was made some estimates about how long, how many man hours. He, 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 I think he suspected, you know, you could have, you know, several thousand people take three months or something to uh, create the West Barai. It was a man. I mean, it was obviously manageable. They did it twice. They also yeah. built a, they built two large Barais. East Barai and West Barai, and, and, and some other small, smaller water tanks. I mean, they seem small compared to the West Barai, but they're still pretty massive constructions. And then, you know, we find canal networks and dikes. The um, the Siem Reap River, which runs through Siem Reap, which you, if you go visit and stay in Siem Reap town, that was probably an Angkorian canal, actually. Uh, not, a, not a natural river. It seems to have been a man-made canal to help move water actually out of the Angkor kind of urban core down towards the Tonle Sap Lake. So uh, they modified this really large landscape, and it, it was really, um, it's impressive. It's incredibly impressive, the amount of work that they did. Um, along those lines, a often repeated and hackneyed description of Angkor is that it was the Venice of the East, <laughs> <laughs> and that you could use a boat and visit the temples or sail on the bares and the reservoirs. However, there are those who've looked at, the in the past, the way in which these uh, bodies of water were disconnected mm -hmm. more than connected. 
and couldn't find that you could actually go from one to another. Has recent research uh, disproved that? Uh, Was it really the Venice of the East? Yeah, I actually don't. I have to say I don't know enough about that. I will say that, um, you know, people were not able to do on-the-ground research looking at these um, looking at these water features until the mid-1990s, and even then their movements were restricted by safety concerns. So um, I think there's a lot more work that still needs to get done, and because it doesn't seem like it on the ground now doesn't mean that um, it there weren't things in the past that have been silted up. Because for a long time, I mean, there were for a long time, uh, like Van Leer said, the West Barai was not a utilitarian, uh, it had no utilitarian functions, it was not part of this agrarian landscape and we know now that was incorrect and actually that there are um, ways to move water in and out of the West Bright. It was just not, we just hadn't found it at that time, at the time that he was writing. Um, So uh, I don't actually, that's not my specialty, so I can't answer that question for you. Uh, But uh, I know Cambodians today are pretty innovative in how they get around the landscape. So it wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past the Angkorians to have had something like that. Richard, though everyone knows that that in the Brunei River, that the 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 Venice of the East is in is in Brunei. So oh. just to, just to clarify, <laughs> the, for, for our Bruneian listeners, would be very angry that yeah. the Kampung Air is not the. Uh, <laughs> that there are many Venices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I apologize. I've been looking too deeply in the mounds and not enough in the canals. So. <laughs> I can't answer your question. But. One thing that was incredible, and maybe we can um, uh, put up some of your from your pictures uh, on, on the link. But the the in, inside of Angkor, it almost looks like like a modern, like well defined like suburbs mm-hmm. with with roads and yeah, and houses and like yeah. swimming pools. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and some of the um, in the reconstructions, <laughs> they look. It, it's a really well planned. Great real estate. It looks like a very well planned <laughs> landscape, especially around Angkor Wat, where we have this very clear grid system with yeah linear features that seem like roads or pathways, and houses uh, or house mounds. We think our house mounds mounds, and then these depressions. I keep saying depressions because, um, I mean, normally when you look at them, you think they look like ponds, but um, some of our work has indicated that they were seasonally dry. They weren't holding water okay. year-round. So I hesitate to use the word pond because when you use the word pond, you kind of think of something that's holding water, yeah. yeah, more permanently. But it does, um, they do seem to have held water. We do our field work during the rainy season, and so I can I can say from firsthand <laughs> experience that when it rains, the water moves very effectively off the mounds into the ponds. And it makes, I mean, the mounds can get very, very sticky uh, and muddy from uh, just their surface. So uh, having these kind of collection, water collection areas next to the mounds is helpful for that reason. And I also suspected that, um, and some of my colleagues and I have discussed that maybe these depressions would be areas where you could have some kind of horticulture, household gardens. So we're um, doing a little bit of work on that too, trying to test that hypothesis. Basically, we, um, we've been collaborating with a lot of different scholars, so people who are doing um, pollen and phytolith analysis. So phytoliths are microscopic parts of plants that can become fossilized. And you can see, so even though organic parts of plants can decompose and we can't find them very easily in the archaeological record, we can um, collect soil samples and then under a microscope to identify these fossilized parts of plants, and that will tell us a little bit more about what's growing. So we have people we're working with at the University College London and also working with a geoarchaeologist who's help, helping us understand the soil layers, the stratigraphy of the mounds and how the mounds were getting built up over time. He's the one who's been doing work on these depressions and telling us that you know he sees patterns in the soil that show that they seem to be dry seasonally. So we're um, working with those uh, specialists and we're hoping to continue working with them or with some other add to our team so we can really tackle as many you know, aspects of this mound as possible and get as much information as possible too, especially just because it's Southeast Asia. It's not great for preservation of organic materials. And that was so much (laughs) of people's lives in the past is textiles, basketry, you know, um, food remains using Mm. banana leaves for like, you know, eating and carrying things. Thatched roofs. Thatched roofs. Yeah. Yeah. So much of this is just, we just can't see macroscopically. So we're doing whatever we can to get as much information as possible about how people are living, what they're doing, what we can find. And uh, from there, hopefully we'll, 
we'll get a more complete picture of what people's lives were like too. I'm interested why uh, and how did you become interested in encore? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get behind the music. Huh? Yeah. Oh, it's um, well, I'll try and make a long story short. I kind of <laughs> fell into it backwards and I, I feel incredibly lucky that I get to I, every time I go to Cambodia, I pinch myself. I can't believe that I get to work there. It's an amazing place to work. Um, but, you know, I was always when I was a kid, I was always interested in archaeology. I thought foolishly for a time I would do I would become an Egyptologist. And I moved on from that. Um, but actually, when I was in college, I took a lot of classes on South Asian religions. And so from there, kind of got interested in Southeast Asia as well, too. And then um, when I was in graduate school, I initially went to work with my Ph.D. supervisor at UW-Madison. His name is Mark Knoyer. Um oh. He works on beads, and I'm also interested in beads. And at the time, I was kind of waffling between South Asia and Southeast Asia. He works in Pakistan, but it's dangerous for him to take students into the field. And so uh, I emailed Miriam Stark at the University of Hawaii. I found out she had a fieldwork project in Cambodia, and I asked her if she was taking any students with her into the field, and she said yes. And so I you know, went with her and uh, got to Cambodia and just loved it. And so I found out I could learn the Khmer language at UW-Madison, and so I studied Khmer and kind of kept plugging away. And, and, and Miriam told me, and she was right, that Cambodian people are incredibly generous and collaborative. And um, they uh, were really excited to work with me. And so it just became a really easy place to work, actually. And um, I, yeah, I just feel really lucky that it kind of happened that way. <laughs> and so I was able to get over there and and meet some meet some people and get access to collections and start doing research that way. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's always good. Uh, people people love that. They're like, they're, they're like, why did you start doing that? Like, they yeah. always love those. They let me basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I I love uh, I love like uh, there's a lot of interesting time periods to work on in Southeast Asia, and I really love the Iron Age, but it's really hard to ignore Encore. So, you know, yeah. even though my first. Love perhaps is the earlier period, the pre-Anquarian and Iron Age periods. Um, I find the Anquarian period is, I mean, it's it's everywhere, and there's so much research to be done on that time period. So it's uh, not a bad place to work either, I have to say. <laughs> so you've never um, been to, uh, to Mohenjo-Daro and Arapa with Professor Kenny No, or? I still haven't. No. One of these days I'm going to get over there and visit when he's doing research, yeah. <laughs> and I have a question about the the mandala mm -hmm. and the layout of the reticulated pattern of mounds at Angkor generally, yeah. but also particularly at Angkor Wat. That if you look at a similar site in Java, the Prambanan, mm -hmm. you have a major temple in the center, and then around that are numerous small temples that are all in a grid pattern. Mm -hmm. Have you entertained the possibility that the mounds themselves may have been f built as subunits within a major mandala and that they could have been places where rites would have been performed for the sub-deity that would have been worshipped there. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, frankly, we no, we haven't taken that close. Of, we're still trying to get a wrap our heads around like the household archaeology part of it. So and not that we're willing, not that we're trying to willfully ignore the other aspects of it, but... Um, I will say I, I've had a Cambodian colleagues. I've had a Cambodian colleague ask about that question or make those similar question, um, bring that similar topic up. And there's a Japanese map of Angkor that's from the 17th century, I think, and and shows uh, these kind of smaller. Uh, I mean, I think he depicted these smaller temples in the corners of the. If I'm remembering this map correctly, in the corners of the interior enclosure. So um, if his map is correct or reflecting something, then there's probably, yeah, there's probably something else going on on these mounds, maybe in addition to people living there, that something else might be happening too. I will say in our excavations, we've been finding fairly mundane kind of daily life stuff that we're finding, like cooking, a lot of cooking, evidence for cooking and cooking pots and those kinds of things. So um your question is one where we need to do, we just need to keep doing more research, I think, in order to 
capture the whole variety of activities, not just on a mound, but within a group of mounds or within a whole section of that interior enclosure. Also, what's interesting is that at Angkor Wat, the grid system is very planned. It looks like these little waffles around the temple. But inside of, if you look at the LIDAR data from other temples and from the Jayavarman seven temples, it's not nearly as organized or um, um, symmetrical, actually. They're a little bit, you can see mounds and depressions, um, but they're a little bit different. And they seem to um, not have been so concerned about symmetry, or maybe they did initially and then people modified them over time. So it's a, I think perhaps uh, people's ideas about the use of space inside of temple enclosures might have changed over time also. So, yeah, that's a good question. I don't have a clear answer, though. Sorry. <laughs> so, uh, like a lot of us, you fell in love with Southeast Asia um, and especially living and working in, in Cambodia. What What is it like, um, the state of um, archaeology in in this important site, in this important field? Yeah. Well, I started working in Cambodia in 2005. Um, people who've worked there even longer, so starting from the late 90s, um, you know, their descriptions about what working in Cambodia was like was that it was it was difficult. It was difficult because the people in Cambodia were having such a hard time. They were still very much in recovery. Um, by the time I got there in 2005, I mean, there weren't like cell phones and internet everywhere. So of course, like life has changed a lot just in the, you know, like that 10 or 12 year period in terms of people's connections to one another. But um, when I was there in 2005, um, and, and even since then, I've seen this increase, like the number of Cambodian archaeology students seems to grow every year. And the um, the people who are studying... Who are Cambodian nationals. Yeah, Cambodian yeah. nationals, yeah. So the um, we every project I've worked on has, has involved a training component where we work with students from the Royal University of Fine Arts. Um, this has been driven by Miriam Stark, who... Uh, initially started working in Cambodia to help train Cambodian archaeologists through the Royal University of Fine Arts. And so um, I've been working with people who started working with us as students, and then now they have jobs in the Opsara Authority, and some of them are going overseas now to continue their studies, getting master's degrees or you know extra kind of certificates or even PhDs. So it's been incredibly satisfying to see how much the Cambodian archaeology program itself in Cambodia has grown. And what I think that means for me as a foreign researcher working in Cambodia is that um, it makes my life a lot easier because there's so many people in Cambodia now who know what archaeology is and understand it. It's helping certainly broadly the population in Cambodia, I think much like honestly in the United States too, could use a lot more education about what archaeology is and what archaeologists do. And why They're just on their national flag. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and why cultural heritage <laughs> preservation is important. Certainly looting is always going to be an issue in Cambodia. But um, I, I think the Cambodian archaeologists, what, what I see as being the um, one of the biggest improvements and changes that I've seen in the past 10 years is just how much Cambodians have taken on um, increasing roles and responsibilities of, in preserving their own cultural heritage and having um, having a really well-trained and skilled group of people who are able to do that. So uh, it seems like um, I've heard stories that, you know, when people first started working in Cambodia in the 1990s, there just weren't, there just weren't people there who had been trained in archaeology. It was really hard to work collaboratively because people... You know, there were only three Cambodian archaeologists in Cambodia who survived the Khmer Rouge. So just there weren't people there who had that background. Now there are, and so we're able to do true collaborations now with many of our Cambodian colleagues. Um, and Cambodians are running their own projects and directing their own projects as well, too. So for me, this is a great success of the training programs that have happened in the last 20 or so years in Cambodia, that the Cambodian archaeology program itself has really become a lot more robust and uh, they're doing things like translating, you know, articles into Khmer. There's a book on early mainland Southeast Asian archaeology by Charles Hyam that's been translated into Khmer. And so nice. the wow. it's really growing. Wow. The archaeology and respect for archaeology and the interest in archaeology in Cambodia has grown a lot. And as a foreign researcher, it makes my life a lot more easy to go to a place that has yeah. that infrastructure. And it's a lot of fun to do that work there. Yeah, well... Thank you for your time, Allison. Thank and, you so much uh, for having me. Congratulations on your new job, and we look forward to uh, 
Is there is there a book series of articles? What can we expect <laughs> coming out coming out of this oh, gosh. research? Yeah, so we have um, Miriam Stark uh, was the lead author on a publication from 2015. I can give a link to that. Yeah. Uh, we can put on the website on some of our work that we've done so far at Encore Watt, and then um, we'll be we are working on a series of publications that should hopefully be coming out in the next year or so on our work, and then uh, we'll be going back into the field in 2018. And uh, I try to blog about that on my, I have a personal blog that, or our archaeology in Cambodia blog. So I try to post what's it, what's it called? We can we called, put a link, but it, yeah, Allison in Cambodia dot WordPress dot com. Yes. Allison with one L. <laughs> so uh, I try to blog when we're in the field, uh, post updates and things about what we're working on as well, too. And I have a Facebook, Allison in Cambodia Facebook page. This I, It's a big plug for my social media i didn't mean for that but uh and we i are have interviewing a, you so i do you, yeah, you, i also yeah. have an allison in cambodia twitter account so on all three of those things if you're interested in cambodian archaeology i try to keep up with news reports or things that are happening and then when we're in the field i try to keep updates as well too so i can give you links if right. you want to post them yeah we would love to and exclu- yeah. <laughs> well, i will say another plug our, our research in 2018 is being funded by earthwatch the earthwatch organization oh. and uh, if you and they take citizen scientist volunteers, uh-huh. you pay a fee and that goes towards your room and board and uh, also contributes to the functioning of our project. So you can check earthwatch.org. Um, by the time this podcast is up there, our web page should be live, I think. And if you're interested in volunteering with us in the field, we'll be taking volunteers in 2018. Okay, yeah, wonderful. Great opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Catherine. And thank you, Allison. Yeah, yes. thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. <laughs>